Hi there, this is Ken Roundy at USH Med Student. I have three amazing students who have been kind enough to repeat this podcast with me after I completely blew the audio. So let's start with introductions. Uh, let's see, Jessica. Okay, so my name is Jessica Carlson. I am a third year at Rocky Vista University, and this is my first rotation, not my first podcast, though I did have a lot Excited to be back. And I'm Kyle Selyus, a fourth year at Rocky Vista, and I'm excited for round two. Liar. And Devin. Um, so I'm Devin Bourne. I'm also fourth year at Rocky Vista, hoping to go into family med, and um, this was kind of my baby for this podcast. Now, Devin, tell us a little bit about how the podcast evolved, if you would, and uh, perhaps even tie in the first podcast in this series, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so I've just, I had this real interest in lithium. I've gotten a lot of mixed messages from different attendings and from the first two years of med school, and it just was a topic that was interesting to me, to, that I wanted to dive into, and it's a lot of material. So yeah, last time we just kind of did the story of lithium, where it's come from, how it's kind of come in and out of practice in different ways in its future. And now with this one, we want to kind of dive into a little more of the nuts and bolts. There's a lot of the important shelf stuff that we're going to be seeing, indications, toxicity, things like that. How about if we start off with indications then? Now, as, as you recall, obviously, since you were the one that taught us this, the United States was last in, first out with lithium. We seemed to use it for a relatively short time. We didn't give uh, lithium the same indications that most other countries gave it. I think we were the 50th country to even start using it or approving it for the use of bipolar disorder. And so that indication, I think Jessica's going to talk a little bit more about that one indication that it has and perhaps how the questions might look that we would see on the shelf exam. Yes, so surprisingly, well, I guess not so surprisingly if you listen to the last podcast, we only have one indication right now for the use of lithium, and it's for persons who have bipolar. And so that's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2, and it's used for mood stabilizing and acute mania. It can be seen, though, as an augment to different forms of um, diagnoses in psychiatry. So I was surprised when we first came on the unit and we were getting accommodated to all of the drugs that these patients were currently using or on and a lot of them who did not necessarily have a specific bipolar disorder maybe a subtype they were on lithium and so we use it a lot in psychiatry not just for bipolar but as Dr. Roundy mentioned for a couple other things as well. See we can sometimes see that uh, for example we use clozapine a fair amount and clozapine can cause some problems with neutropenia, occasionally agranulocytosis, and we, there is some literature out there about the use of lithium in maintaining white counts. I think, Jessica, you're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. We'll sometimes use it for aggression as well. So there are other uses. Quite often, you'll see this used in schizoaffective disorder as well. So, so you saw this in places other than bipolar disorder, most recent episode yes. manic, or bipolar disorder, uh, most recent episode, hypomanic, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I was surprised, but once we started to dive into the material for this podcast, I noticed that there are uses, quote unquote, that are off label, but you need them. You need the mood stabilizing effects. Going to the um, blood count, interestingly enough, there's been a fair amount of studies that indicate that lithium can increase your GCSF. 
And that is something that stimulates the hematopoietic stem cells or the CD34 positive cells that will eventually lead to a variation of all the subtypes in your heme system. And so a lot of papers have actually indicated this is a true concept that we can use it for, but there haven't been enough preclinical data to push us into the clinical phase for this. But interestingly enough, there was a clinical trial that just finished in December of 2020 that is going to be showing us the use of lithium and bone regeneration with fractures. So once that information comes out, we might be able to see more FDA approval. I thought it was very fascinating. I think uh, the first time we tried to do this podcast, you listed a number of things where lithium has been studied. Off-label uses, again, this the only on-label use is with bipolar disorder. Yes. And it's not with bipolar depression, it's with bipolar mania or for bipolar um, maintenance, right? Those yes. are the two indications. What were some of the other things that you saw or learned about lithium? So interestingly enough, and the topic that I found to be probably the coolest that I didn't know was in its use with antiviral agents. So surprisingly, there was a paper that was posted in response to what could we treat COVID with? And this is a review article talking about lithium and its uses in other viral illnesses with the strongest indication in the DNA virus, herpes simplex virus. So actually it was really cool. They did a few studies, obviously not enough information to push it to clinical settings, but the preclinical data did show its antiviral nature. One of the most interesting studies indicated that individuals who suffered from her or HSV, they had really low incidences or reoccurrence of HSV when they were on lithium. And so they did a follow-up study with topical lithium and patients who took topical or used topical, they never saw a reoccurrence of a cold sore, quote unquote, in the same location when it was topical. So that was probably the coolest moment reading about lithium outside of psychiatry. So making a note to myself to find a compounding <laughs> pharmacy for topical <laughs> lithium. Um, now, you have almost as much interest in that as Devin did in lithium-based batteries, right? You both start smiling <laughs> yes. and getting a little geeked out. I really enjoy seeing that. Uh, the article about the coronavirus treatment yes. was not in 2020. When was that from? Um, was that just recently this year? I think you told me 2018 the first time we did this podcast, that the articles about oh. coronavirus were from prior to the uh, oh, the pandemic. studies on coronavirus. This yeah. paper was published in 2020. Uh, the, the most recent one that did the summary, right? Yes. Yeah. The summary was 2020. Coronavirus was in 2018. So they were looking at its use to inhibit viral replication. And it worked in coronavirus, but only in petri dishes and in not in humans yet. So we haven't pushed it to the point where we could get this clinical data. And I think this the point of this paper was to hopefully get to a point where we could try it for coronavirus and other antivirals. One last note, I think uh, I think that that was kind of all the indications and some of the cool stuff, not all of the cool stuff. Yeah, there's things, a lot more. But some of the things that you thought were very interesting. Now, one of the things that we're gonna talk about quite often through the rest of the discussion is that most of these studies are not looking at the doses we use in treatment of bipolar disorder. Yes. They see a lot more need to push it past kind of our recommended or recommended dose, and they see that higher dosing is what's working. But the problem is, is they always say in the paper, but we know the toxicities of lithium make this a huge risk factor, and I think that's why we don't see enough clinical studies about lithium. 
and I think more and more as the conversation goes on, what we'll see is lower the better. Yes. Right? That that there that uh, narrow therapeutic window we're going to talk about in a moment. In fact, that's probably the cue to switch over to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this being kind of my baby, um, I wanted to go over what I thought would be a lot of really good. Um, shelf material and, and just material in general of what I was looking for, okay, as a physician in practice one day, what do I need to know about lithium? And so I spent a long time looking at what are the basic side effects of lithium that patients are going to experience, uh, looking at the toxicity of lithium and how we deal with that, what are those ranges, and what happens if a patient does become toxic, and then finally some of the major organ systems that this really plays into and can begin to have significant and even permanent effects on. I want to start off by talking about one of the things that uh, was most distressing to me during my training. There was a patient I worked with who had become lithium toxic. And so what I'd like you to do first is talk about acute lithium toxicity. Um, talk about maybe the ways that it may happen and then how you recognize the toxicity and what the treatments are. Okay. So yeah, we have with toxicity, we can have both an acute or a chronic toxicity, and we need to be monitoring and be aware of both. So with an acute, as you can imagine, this is something that comes on rapidly. So first off, there can be, we can have an overdose of some sort where the patient ingests too much lithium or over a very short time period, and then has this rapid onset of toxicity. The toxicity can also be triggered by different events. So, and this is, I think, one of the things where boards really gets into. So there are certain other medications that can change pretty much the metabolism and how our lithium balance. So one of the ones that quite commonly uh, comes up is our NSAIDs. So NSAIDs actually interfere with lithium excretion in the kidneys. So if a patient, you know, is like, oh, you know, I had a I have bipolar, disorder and I started taking you know ibuprofen because I had a bad headache for a few days and then all of a sudden they get really sick and it's because yeah the the NSAIDs have triggered a lithium toxicity and it can happen fairly quickly in those circumstances. Another one that we see um, I actually had a practice question on yesterday was our thiazide diuretics same problem these can also keep lithium on board longer and so suddenly what was a normal and okay dose for them becomes a toxic dose because of the buildup. So but what does that look like? So what is it going to look like when we see an acute um, lithium toxicity? So most of the symptoms actually start out as GI. So we end up with things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, but then we also start to have the neuro symptoms come in. So we can have dizziness, weakness, uh, cognitive blunting, they just start to kind of slow down a little bit. And so seeing those things, okay, we need to jump on board and start treating. But it can be hard to figure out what's going on. These are kind of vague symptoms. We might, it's easy to confuse them with a lot of things. So hopefully we've, we're processing what is, what are they being treated for? What are their conditions? Um, and are they on lithium? So that that can raise that flag for us. My recollection as, and I put on a mask so I would shut up and listen. Um, I'm going to take it off now. Uh, my recollection is that there's almost like a pathway of physical symptoms that correspond to the rising blood levels. It's not a, 
absolute correlation, but my recollection was if you start seeing a tremor, that would be one of the first signs that somebody's lithium dose is getting higher. Now, it's also very common in lithium, but it's like the first step towards toxicity in my mind. And was there anything that you saw that was stepwise? A lot of the stepwise stuff that I read about was the neural. So pretty much just seeing your your neurological symptoms increasing in severity as it goes up. Yeah, you you are correct. Yeah, the tremor kind of steps in, sets in and it's one of the side effects cuz yeah, it can just happen on a normal dosage, but it can be a signal yeah that you're getting to a higher level as that goes along. I'm trying to remember if reflexes were one of those things that you would start to check. I know that there are a couple of conditions where you might see hyperreflexia or hypotonia. Was that something that came up in what you read? Was not. I didn't see any comments on yeah hyper or hypo with reflexes. More about the cognitive slowing and then the frank confusion. Correct. How do you know when to dialyze? So that's one of the big questions. I mean, the my recollection is that the first step is stop giving people lithium. Right. <laughs> Correct. Uh, the second step is. Uh, liquid fluids. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the physiology behind that eventually, right? And then the third step might be dialyze. Uh, when do you choose to dialyze? So looking at this, so our reference range for lithium is 0.6 to 1.2. As lithium levels start to go up, it's, it's often, it can happen at various levels for different individuals, but it's often around 1.5 we really start to see problems. And that you're going to look at their at them as a whole person what what are their symptoms if they seem manageable if their neuro symptoms seem minor then we can just start with a more conventional treatment but if the neuro symptoms start to become more severe they start having slurred speech severe cognitive blunting um, and then this can go on even to seizures coma and eventually death as the neurosymptoms get worse. As you see those neurosymptoms elevating, then you should really be getting um, dialysis on your radar, something that you, there's a good chance that you need to be doing that. And then finally, if it hits over 2.5, yeah, absolutely, it's a must. Like you need, you need to get the dialysis going. I think the shelf exam questions start making you make a cl clinical judgment about that somewhere around 1.8. Does that sound right? Some, somewhere in there, I think, yeah. And they'll be, do that based on the cognitive symptoms or neurologic symptoms that are showing up. Suppose that you're not having those neurologic symptoms showing up, but you have a high dose. You, are, you have stopped the lithium. You are providing fluids, um, potentially IV, potentially drinking, right? Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the situation. There are also some medications that can be given that help increase the excretion of lithium. Do you want to talk about those a little bit? Yeah, so pretty much I kind of created almost like a, a stepwise algorithm in my head of how I want to like treat this if I see it in a patient. So the very first thing that you're going to want to do are your ABCs. So first off, if you have a patient who's, yeah, experiencing this toxicity, let's make sure their airway's secure, that they're breathing, and we have good circulation. Let's make sure that they're going to stay alive here in the very near future. Once we've done that, um, if this is like an acute ingestion and it's it's been very recent, then we'd like to stick an NG tube in and let's pump their stomach. Let's try and get out any lithium that really hasn't made it further down the GI tract to kind of avoid some of that absorption. And then in addition to 
pumping the stomach through that NG tube, we can also give the patient polyethylene glycol. So you can do anywhere between a half liter to two liters an hour through the NG tube. And this just does a good job of helping to push the lithium through the GI system and get it out the other end. And all the recommendations I said is you just run it until their stools go clear, until you've just, you've washed them out clean. Um, but with that, I thought was interesting. What they did not say to do was to use activated charcoal. So I think that's a go-to. We think of a lot of times with poisonings and definitely if maybe the patient has other things on board that they've overdosed with, then yeah, let's actually like, let's get it on board, but it does not help with lithium at all. They've, they've found no data that it helps with that. So that's not something we should be hopping on board with. However, one other drug that is interestingly helpful is K-exalate. So we usually think of K-exalate as being really helpful with potassium and getting that out of the GI system. Um, but lithium and potassium aren't all that different. They both have one valence electron. They're both on that left side of the periodic table. And so the K-exalate can also help with binding up and helping to pull some of that lithium out. So that's something that can also be considered to put on board if we're really worried about how much is in their system and how much we want to prevent from being absorbed. And then, of course, yeah, we talked about we're going to get fluids going, IV fluids, oral fluids if they can take it. Um, and that's just going to help, one, dilute whatever's in the system already and then really get those kidneys functioning and so we can just start washing that out. Is there a place for something like spironolactone? Not that I read okay. anywhere. Because I think one of the other uh, test questions that shows up is that the potassium-sparing diuretics can also change lithium. Is that right? It's possible. I didn't read anything about spironolactone. Okay, and I, I can't remember if that... Exchanges lithium, it, it seems like there are some medications that reduce the blood levels of lithium. And for whatever reason, those are things that I have to reread every time I look at lithium. Um, so very, very well done. One of the reasons why we have uh, this attention to toxicity of lithium is because of something called that narrow therapeutic window. I, I've tried to explain that at least a thousand times, and I'm still not very good at it. I'm wondering if you want to tackle that. <laughs> I'm going to throw you, totally put you on the spot and say, in your words, like as a student, how would you describe a narrow therapeutic window? So when I think of drugs in a therapeutic window, I think we, when you put a drug on board, it needs to reach a certain level before we're going to see any results from it, before it becomes efficacious. So at a really low level, there's just not enough on board to make a difference on anything. And then as we get higher, then we actually move into, yeah, this therapeutic range where we're seeing benefits of that medication. And then at some point, the level gets so high, we start seeing problems caused by the medication. And that can be various things, organ toxicities, you know, organ damages, different things, extreme side effects that then put it at a range where no, that's too high. And every drug is different with that. Some of them have huge therapeutic range, other ones have very narrow ones. Lithium's one of these drugs where we need to get it to a certain level to make it efficacious for the patient, but it's not far that much further beyond that than it then becomes detrimental to the patient. And so we've got to keep that balance and keep it in that narrow gap. One of the, the conversations we had, and I, I think we kind of came to this conclusion more towards the middle or the end of the podcast than we did near the beginning, 
And that is that this narrow therapeutic window, really what we're shooting for is the lowest end of that narrow therapeutic window that is efficacious. And we're going to talk about a number of side effects. So if we're treating patients with bipolar disorder using this medication and we want to be able to manage this medication well, we need to be thinking about this narrow therapeutic window as low as possible while maintaining a therapeutic dose. And the reason why is because it seems like all of these side effects, both temporary and more permanent, seem to be related on some level to the dose. Correct. So let's talk about, I think you've referred to this as chronic toxicity, um, but let's go ahead and talk about patient management and how to avoid having these long-term toxicities or these chronic toxicities, if, if that sounds like a, a reasonable place to go. Yeah. Before we do, though, I can see that uh, somebody in the party here is itching to tell us about spironolactone. Oh, so I looked it up and it says that spironolactone increases lithium concentrations by 16% when given at the same time. So it is one of those drugs that you have to watch out for if you're giving them both at the same time. So thiazide, spironolactone, um, NSAIDs. NSAIDs, volume contraction. I believe I've seen toxicity yes. with uh, protracted vomiting. So if you have somebody that gets a GI bug and starts vomiting um, and they call you, one of the things you want to make sure that happens is that the lithium is stopped during those periods of time, especially when people can't keep li liquids down. So, uh, so back to chronic toxicity slash just plain good patient management. Let's talk about it. Yeah, so the chronic toxicities, these come from, you know, we've put our patient on a certain dosage of lithium, but it seems it's a little high. And so over time, the tissue, the the lithium starts building up in their body tissues until it's having these toxic effects on the patient. And so as we try and get a patient onto lithium, it's gonna require some stewardship of starting at the lithium at a low level and slowly titrating it up and continuing to measure blood levels. So most of the recommendations I saw were at least once a week, sometimes maybe even twice a week, monitoring it as we're making changes and bringing it up. And as we're bringing it up, we want to start monitoring and seeing when is this providing a good effect for the patient. As soon as it's becoming efficacious for the patient, then we're done. We don't need to take it up anymore. And the goal is, yeah, to keep that level as low as possible. Because, yeah, a lot of the side effects we're going to discuss are going to be dose-dependent. So if we, even though we may have it in the therapeutic range, sitting at that higher end may provide or create results that we really don't want for the patient. If we can keep it at the lower end and still have it high enough where we're giving the patient the benefit of the drug, we're going to be a lot better off with keeping that patient happy. So I know we're going backwards a little bit. Um, we'll, we'll go to starting the medication in a few minutes. Um, as far as that toxicity goes, let's talk about kidneys to start with. Is that okay? Yeah. So, um, so the first thing to really know with kidneys is that they, 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 <laughs> we have polydipsy and polyuria that comes as a side effect of, of lithium use. And this is not a permanent effect. This is a temporary one that's, it's, again, it's, it's largely dose dependent and it'll go away if we discontinue the lithium. It can be annoying to patients, but it's usually not a cause for them stopping it. The lithium interferes with ADH. 
uh, having its effect on the kidney. And so the kidneys are no longer able to concentrate the urine in the collecting tubules. And so you end up with all this extra urination and then the patient has to drink a lot more. However, as we go on with continued lithium use, that can start to have more permanent effects on the kidney. So what we've really seen is that when lithium levels are higher, the kidney has a hard time uh, doing repairs and the higher levels of lithium tend to have some damage on the kidney. So we start seeing um, nephron atrophy and fibrosis, interstitial fibrosis in the kidneys. And we begin to see the GFR and the creatinines rise as the kidney function decreases. So because of that, if this is something we have to closely monitor with uh, giving lithium to our patients. So at the, at the onset of giving lithium to a patient, we're gonna to need to get a GFR and a creatinine as a baseline. And then we're gonna be monitoring this at three months, at six months, and then annually, and then any time that we see that there might be a kidney issue to make sure that the kidneys are staying healthy through this. Now, in an effort to kind of combat this, um, the best things that I found uh, through the papers I was reading was to have once a day lithium dosing. So because we need a lower lithium level for the kidneys to do some of these repairs, the recommendation was give a once a day dosing so we have a high peak, but it also gives time for it to drop off and we get a lower trough. And that gives a little bit of time you know, towards the end of the dose for the kidneys to get in and do a repair on some of the damage. And so they've seen that if you do the once a day dosing, it tends to delay some of the kidney damage that could potentially happen with these patients. But something yeah, very important to monitor. And it is an indication, if it gets bad, to discontinue lithium. It's probably something you'd want to consult with a nephrologist and monitor, but as their kidney function declines, you may need to take them off lithium and find another solution. Some of the um, randomized controlled trials that we looked at seem to make the case that the risk of uh, renal changes was fairly small. Uh, that only some few, less than a percentage of the people that uh, were on lithium would need uh, a kidney replacement at some point compared to the general population. And, and yet if you read the uh, literature by the nephrologist, they're, they're saying very clearly, listen, low doses is a healing tool for kidneys, increased podocyte, the aquaphorins seem to be more stable, things that I don't fully understand about the kidneys and don't pretend to. <laughs> um, but they're talking about interstitial nephritis with microcyst uh, formulation, plus or minus segmental glomer glomerulosclerosis, right? So there clearly is some sort of uh, physical change to the structure of the kidneys associated with, with lithium use. It's important to monitor. Correct. Okay, and, and don't be fooled by, hey, that risk is low, because it's real. Correct. And so, yeah, it's a big risk. Not all patients are going to have this as an issue, but it's it's a significant problem. So we need to monitor for it in all of our patients. I think I tried to look very briefly for genetic risk factors for development of, of uh, this, jeez, uh, interstitial nephritis with microcyst formation plus or minus segmental glomerulosclerosis, right? <laughs> um, but I didn't see anything along those lines yet. Maybe I just didn't search in the right place. I'm hoping that we would have something in the future that might guide us along those lines. Um, moving forward from the kidneys, 
Um, yeah, so we have two other major organ systems. But before I do, I remember okay. what I was going to ask. I was probably, I, I knew there was something. <laughs> um, in the when I first started with lithium, it was twice a day, right? Litho bid, BID, so two long-acting doses, uh, and trough doses or trough blood levels were taken before the morning dose. When do you take a trough dose now? So it's still we, we want to take the trough level before they receive their next dosage. So if, if whether yeah, usually we're going to be doing one a day now seems to be the best recommendation. So before they take yeah their their next dose is when we want to get that trough level. Still want to have the trough not just twelve hours after the last dose, but before before the next dose. Before the next dose. Okay, um, and I think that we talked about the possibility of having. Uh, inaccurate lithium elevations because we're getting blood levels immediately after somebody's been given their lithium dose. Correct. <laughs> and so if you get a, get a test question where somebody is lithium toxic and they're, uh, they have their dose of medication and then their blood draw, then the answer is not panic, right? The answer yeah. is something else. <laughs> All right, now forward. You were going to talk about what next? So, so We've, t we've discussed kidneys. That, that's one of the major organ systems that we hit up with lithium. The other two that we need to discuss are thyroid and parathyroid. So with thyroid, usually what happens with lithium is it can induce hypoparathyroidism. So the lithium inhibits the release of T3 and T4 from the thyroid, and then we get it, it just looks like a normal hypoparathyroidism. We get increased. Hold on, I think TSH. you mean hypothyroidism. Correct. Sorry. Yeah. And and then we get the inc increase of TSH. Yeah. And then the low thyroid levels. And so again, this is something that we have to be prepared for from the outset of lithium. So unfortunately, a lot of the side effects of lithium overlap with hypoparathyroidism. So when another patient comes. Hypothyroidism. Sorry, did I say it wrong again? <laughs> Hypothyroidism, we can get this right, yeah. I'm so glad it's you and not me this time. <laughs> I think I did the same thing in the first podcast, didn't I? Like 17 times? So, oh, I know, we all do it right. This we're here to keep each other straight. Yeah. So, yeah, so we, we want to make sure that we get levels of TSH at the onset of initiating lithium therapy. And then again, we're going to monitor that throughout and at regular intervals and then anytime the patient is symptomatic because it can be very hard to differentiate is this just a side effect of the lithium that they're having some weight gain that they're having some fatigue some cognitive blunting or is this that their thyroid is low and so getting those base levels before and then being able to compare that down the line can help us go in a direction now if they do become hypothyroid in the course of any of this, this is not an indication to discontinue lithium. We simply just treat this as hypothyroidism, we give them levothyroxine, we bounce them back out, and we call it good, and we continue the treatment just as normal, as in contrast to the kidneys where we would discontinue it if we see those problems. Perfect. I would also add that not only can the symptoms look like the medication side effects, but it can also look like a mood state change. So. Quite often, I think in my mind, I would have somebody on lithium, then a couple of months, two, three, four months later, you might see the effects of hypothyroidism that are lithium-induced. And you're thinking not as much, oh, is this just a side effect of the medication? Because you think that would show up at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So um, at that point, you're thinking, oh, this person has had a depressive downturn. And then if you're, if you're chasing the depression rather than immediately considering this could be related to thyroid changes, 
then I think you've missed the boat, right? One of the articles we read said, anytime you have any suspicion that something just doesn't quite seem right, recheck the labs. Correct. Like, don't wait. Don't wait for the markers to recheck. And I think we'll talk about all of those labs and kind of some schedules for that when we're done with Parathyroid. Parathyroid, yeah. All right. <laughs> now we'll see if I start saying thyroid now. But uh, so the lastly, and this one I thought was fascinating. I didn't know about this until recently when I was doing practice questions. Uh, but lithium can cause hyperparathyroidism, and so the the question that I saw was: Okay, we have a patient who's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. They get put on treatment. They stabilize. They come in two months later, and you pull a CMP on them, and their calcium comes back as 13. What on earth is going on? Well, it's another lithium game here that we're going on. So the lithium, uh, it causes the PTH to increase. And then in addition to that, it also causes the kidneys to retain calcium. So we're keeping more on calcium on board, and then we're secreting more parathyroid hormone, saying absorb more calcium, take more out of the bones. And that's where we see this can potentially start to run away. So again, we're going to get a calcium level when we begin lithium treatment, and we're going to get it regularly or anytime they display any kind of symptoms. That's going to be our moans, bones, groans, stones, you know, symptoms that we're seeing in these patients of hypercalcemia. Was there anybody else that you ever met, had ever met that seemed shocked by that? Yeah, so <laughs> we were discussing the effects of lithium, yeah, on one of our morning meetings, and I brought that up, and I think, yeah, that caught you off guard as well. I think I said, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I might have said, I'm not aware of that. Yeah. You know, I, I try to be, I've been caught enough times by my students uh, who know something I don't. Uh, it happens enough now. Um, that I think I try to be very, very cautious when there's <laughs> something that I don't know about. So I, I think I was a little more cautious than the uh, flat-out, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm totally surprised by this. Maybe I shouldn't have been. I don't believe that we, I, I don't recall if we use an ionized calcium or not as some of our initial laboratory work when we're starting a lithium protocol. We have protocols set up here at the hospital to help us ensure that we're keeping those things safe and then we try to have that hair trigger for check the labs check the labs check the labs right correct so hyperparathyroidism uh, one of the questions i had during last podcast but did not ask related to the uh, changes that parathyroid secretion would have on the bones do we see increased risk of osteoporosis from this did it say anything about that is there something about osteoporosis over the long run with lithium any of those kinds of things that popped up in what you read so i did some looking for that to see yeah if it was increasing risk of osteoporosis i didn't find any significant changes or, or mention of that anywhere i suppose maybe if we left it long enough that could become a problem uh, down the road, especially if the calcium really is truly elevated. But again, this is not a symptom that happens in everyone. Not everyone has these calcium problems. But even, yeah, with a normal lithium dose where they don't have um, this extreme hyperparathyroidism, I didn't find any increased risk for osteoporosis with lithium use. Perfect. Uh, so we've talked about the three that are, are really the most significant. Um, we talked about with uh, kidneys, 
that can be a game changer, right? You might need to stop lithium. With thyroid, don't stop the lithium. With parathyroid, that one is if it's if it's becoming a problem with the calcium, then that is an indication, yeah, to try a different drug to to control the bipolar disorder. Some things that are not quite as significant, the ones that don't require the laboratory testing, but things that we should be considering. Uh, how about body weight? So this is one of the significant side effects of lithium. It's actually one of the most cited reasons for patients deciding on their own accord to stop lithium usage. So uh, I read, uh, it was uh, the Glitton article from the International Journal of Bipolar Disorder. Um, they did a really awesome literature review and went through a lot of these side effects, um, seeing their prevalence and their effects. And weight gain's pretty significant. So they found that 77% of patients gained six kilograms or more uh, during, it was usually the first one to two years of using lithium. So this is not just a little bit, this is a significant amount of weight. And this can be really distressing to the patients that they're gaining so much. Um, they pointed at some different things, having uh, effects on uh, on appetite that it can potentially have. Uh, they also pointed to the polyuria polydipsia. So because the patients are urinating so much and then need to drink so much, some of these patients start supplementing with high caloric drinks. And so pointing out to the patients, like, you may get really thirsty on this drug. You may need to be careful about what you use to, to rehydrate, to control your calorie intake. Uh, but so there's not a ton we can do about the weight gain aside from, again, dose dependence, trying to keep lithium as low as possible while still giving them an efficacious dose. And keeping it at that lower end does seem to be able to help a little bit with uh, combating some of that weight gain. Yeah, that seems like the, the recurring theme is, is finding that therapeutic window and keeping at the minimum effective dose. Because the side effects, they all sound really scary, but they are dose dependent. So if you can keep them at a therapeutic range, but not higher than that, it's a lot safer to use. Correct. That can be difficult. I mean, I, I think it's a lot easier for us to sit here and talk about that than it is to have somebody in a clinic and they're at uh, 0 0.9 and you're thinking, oh, that's maybe just a titch higher that I'd really like. Can we hit 0 0.7 and not have the patient you know, spend their life savings, destroy their long-term relationships, uh, burn relationships with their children, uh, wreck their car speeding. I don't know why that happens so much or get charges for shoplifting. All of those things <laughs> seem to happen a great deal with our patients that are manic. So. I feel like we need like a monitor, like a glucose monitor, but have it with <laughs> the patient over lithium yeah. because then we could be like, yeah, we'll use it more often. But Yeah, it's true though because if you measure the lithium two hours later or two hours earlier, you might get a different blood level. So yeah. there's a, and if you're well hydrated versus a little bit dehydrated, there's a lot of factors going into it that makes it difficult to get that perfectly accurate level that we're talking about that we should be getting. That keeps people perfectly happy and well. Yeah, yeah we're talking about kind of an ideal world here. Aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> I do like the idea of uh, glucose monitor. I know, though. I think I'll yeah. think about that in the future. Maybe we can patent that idea later on. <laughs> That'd be great. We're going to talk about Epstein's anomaly later, I think. Um, hair and skin. So yeah, there's a few things. Um, so dermatologically, I wasn't able to find any data on uh, how often this is going on, but lithium can cause acne and it can also cause psoriasis. But it, again, 
dose dependent, so try and keep the lithium lower if you can. And then these we just treat as we would any other patient with acne or psoriasis with just the normal uh, medical regimes for those. And usually that's sufficient to deal with it. Hair loss, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you actually had more data on this than I did. Uh, I, I think the McKnight article, which we read, and again, uh, you and I talked about how challenging it was to make sense of the data out of the, the yeah. McKnight article. This was a Lancet article that used all sorts of different kinds of outcome measures depending on the data they were correlating. And they kicked out data of some randomized control trials and kept some case controlled trials and looked at some cohort data and looked at some case reports and still uh, out of a 4,000 article or so review kept only 300 and change, right? So we, we were very baffled by almost 6,000 articles and records. Uh, they kept almost 400 and so we were kind of baffled by this but they mentioned two uh, randomized controlled trials looking at hair loss, 8% uh, hair loss with lithium to 6% with placebo. Uh, amongst 91 and 94 patients respectively in one study and then 3% with lithium and 0% uh, in uh, the placebo population amongst 32 and 28 patients respectively. So uh, the data there are not compelling, but boy, you sure hear the stories and wonder what it means, right? Uh, so I don't know what to make of that. Something else to watch out for. <laughs> I think so. I, I, I kind of liked the take home from the McKnight article, which was, uh, when prescribing, describe the risks. Not only should GFR and TSH be checked with baseline labs, but so should a serum calcium, which makes sense with uh, the parathyroid that we're talking about. And those tests should be rechecked with the slightest provocation and perhaps checked more often than is indicated or typically recommended if there's family history or some sort of abnormality within the labs. Um, and that the uncertainty of the birth risks, and we'll talk about this, are discussed at length as well. And then not only that before starting the medication, but then after the medication, I think I mentioned this already, at the drop of a hat, recheck those labs, right? Um, repeat the labs also immediately, not just with any abnormalities or family history, but with any change in mood state and then uh, record any of the symptoms that we've talked about that the data is a little bit ambiguous about. Right? Yeah. Just record it. Write it down. Hey, do you, do you feel like your hair's changing at all? Is your skin changing at all? Um, a review of systems seems pretty reasonable if you're using lithium. Absolutely, yeah. Because, yeah, there's a bunch of other ones. I think I'll just mention them, other things that can come up. So uh, nausea and vomiting is typically most common at onset with lithium. It generally fades. And you can divide doses at the beginning that can help with some tolerability issues. But again, we usually want to get to the once daily dose. Um, diarrhea, it's most common with extended release lithium because the pill goes further down the GI tract. Um, this sometimes can get better, but usually the best thing is just to get off the extended release. Um, the tremor, we mentioned briefly, this can happen about 25% of patients. Um, a lot of times the best thing we can do is to remove other exacerbating symptoms uh, or things that can add to it. So Maybe they need to have less caffeine in their diet. Um, maybe maybe they need to get enough sleep, you, you know, to, to help with these tremors. And uh, this tremor looks a lot like a tremor that's called either familial tremor, essential tremor, or... Physiologic. Physiologic tremor. Okay. Correct. So propranolol, too, is yes. a possibility. Correct. Um, and then 
the cognitive impairment. This can make people a little slower, a little foggy. This is another major reason that patients may decide to try and get off of it. It can be sometimes hard to point the finger at lithium. A number of these patients are on other drugs for their mental health. So sometimes it can be difficult to know exactly what's causing that. Does it have to do with their mood? If they've just come down from being pretty manic and they really liked being in that state, it may just be they don't like being normal anymore. No, uh, normal. Quote, unquote, 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 yeah. yeah. In, it, not as fast, right? Correct. Yeah. And then last was sexual dysfunction. So about a third of patients can have this, and this can affect um, three different areas. So this can affect libido in both men and women. Um, it can cause erectile dysfunction in men, and then it can cause delay or even uh, a complete block of climax for both men and women. So that can also be um, kind of frustrating for them. Interesting enough, the best treatment that I read for this was aspirin, which I could not find a reason why or a mechanism of action for, but they found that that, that was the best treatment to help with these sexual side effects of lithium. So go figure. Interesting. I, I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> I try to add something sometimes. I'll just shut up. Very good. Uh, I think we've tackled how you would manage lithium fairly well, right? Both how you'd start it, the kinds of things you want to know before you start the medication, the kinds of things you would want to talk about with your patient before you start the medication, with one exception. Correct. So the last thing I think we really need to dive into, this is where Kyle's been helping me out, is with pregnancy and the risks there. Yeah. So the first place I went was the package insert. And I think, Jessica, you were looking up whether it's contraindicated. and Yeah. So when you are pregnant, there's a list of drugs that get like a level system from the FDA, from pediatricians. And it's like A through D and then X. X is completely contraindicated. And surprisingly, when we looked it up earlier, the only things that are absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy are something in the benzodiazepine groups. But lithium is listed as D, which means the FDA sees it as if you can avoid using it in pregnancy, you should probably avoid it unless the risks and the benefits weigh out a different way. But interestingly enough, the Pediatric Association gives it a contra contraindicated. We looked that up today. So a full contraindication. Full contraindication from the Pediatric Association. FDA says it's actually not absolutely contraindicated. I think the National Institute of so I looked it up. Health. It, yeah, it's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. I don't, I don't know exactly what that is. Is that NICHE or something? I think this might be a British group. N-I-H-C-E. Is, it, is that a Great Britain group? I don't know. I was just Googling it, and I wasn't figuring it out. <laughs> might be. Might be. But they list it also as, a con as an absolute contraindication. Uh -huh. but, the, but the prescribing information, the PI. The PI says, it, the first sentence says, if you decide to use lithium in pregnancy, be very careful, essentially. So it, the package insert doesn't say that you can't. It doesn't say it's contraindicated. It says, if you use it, watch out for these things. Now, we haven't really mentioned, uh, is it the elephant in the room? There's a test question that everybody knows about. Right. It starts with eh, eh, and <laughs> ends with Steen's anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so that's one of those reflex questions for me. I see lithium on a test, and I jump. If there's Epstein anomaly in the answer choices, I'm selecting it. You just, don't even read the rest of the question? Yeah, I just go right for it. I, I probably should double check, double check the if question. If they're pregnant, there. maybe. <laughs> 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 but, 
probably. But, yeah, there's there's a few <laughs> things like that where it's it's just a, ro- a, sh- a strong association in my mind, and that's one of them. And yet, if you look at the data... Yeah, if, when you look at the data, the absolute risk as- with associated with lithium for Epstein anomaly is really pretty low. So we're talking about AAR, right? Yeah. So Or ARR, absolute risk reduction? Absolute... It's it's this is uh, just the absolute risk, okay. not the risk reduction. So, okay. I think it would just be AR. AR. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're on I'm, AR now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so when you when you control for an affective disorder, so when you have a lot of these studies have compared people taking lithium to the general population, and the problem with that is. When you look at patients that have bipolar disorder, there's other factors going on. That what has predisposed them to this, this disorder or this mental illness, and that's not controlled for in a lot of studies. There's also a publication bias. So if a study is done and they're not finding a, st- a statistical difference, then they're not publishing their results. So what ends up getting published and talked about is the risk and it's actually not that great of a risk though it still is a risk and the the language they use is pretty good i wonder is if this I can the nicht or whatever it is the this is the so this is a paper by uh fonaro in the american journal of psychiatry and she says let's see if i can find it real quick I'm sorry. That's okay. Don't feel stressed about the dead air time. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I'm not seeing it right now, but especially with with spontaneous abortion, that was another concern that a lot of people have, and it's a concern for anyone who gets pregnant. And so they worry if they take lithium, am I going to have an increased risk of this spontaneous abortion? And the answer is no, not on lithium. So when they controlled for affective disorders... That's that statistical difference disappeared. So let me just make sure I can back up and, and listen and, and summarize what you're saying. So a lot mm-hmm. of the studies that look at there, there's not a way to uh, set up a study that tries to see if something is actively harming a fetus, right? These are all right. things that happen uh, post-marketing surveillance. And with lithium, what they've tried to do is go back and do essentially cohort studies or case control studies, if I understand correctly, and try and make comparisons between groups of people that either are on lithium or not on lithium to come to some sort of assessment of the risk. And I think what you're saying is that when you start looking at just people who have affective disorders like bipolar disorder or depression, and you use those as your case controls, that those differences in Epstein's anomaly start to go away. And those differences are already fairly modest, right? There's some baseline prevalence of Epstein's anomaly in the, in the general population. I think I read uh, very, very low. And the case number is also very low with people who are taking lithium, but it is clearly higher than the background population. Right, so your odds ratio when you're comparing to the general population is somewhere around a four or a five. When you control for the effective disorder, that odds ratio odds ratio drops to around a two. So your your absolute risk is going from one percent to two percent. Okay. So it's still a risk, but that risk is really low, especially when you're weighing the risk of destabilizing into a manic episode. 
which can be in some studies anywhere from 30% of patients to 70% of patients will destabilize into a manicapsid. And that can be very dangerous. I think uh, I think it would be nice to be able to look at those various studies. I think you read a review article that summarized the data from stopping uh, lithium. Mm -hmm. Did they talk about what was done during those attempts to stop lithium? Was it place somebody on an antipsychotic like Haldol, which has a long history of stabilizing mania during pregnancy? Uh, was it simply that they stopped uh, lithium on a month-long lead-in and then mania happened during the first trimester? Did you have any sense of kind of the nuances of that data? I didn't, and it didn't go into the details there. It gave more general recommendations, and it did say that if you stop the lithium, and I don't know if they were saying and added something else, but if you stop the lithium, your chance of, of destabilizing is significantly higher, no matter what you do, is the impression I got. I once was in a seminar where a, an author that I respect a great deal uh, made a comment that I think he hoped would stay off the record, so to speak, <laughs> and what he said was, uh, mothers who take Zoloft, uh, the babies at least initially seem to do better than mothers who are not taking Zoloft. Not Maybe it was Prozac. I think it was actually Prozac that they did the study with. And his point was, we don't think that it's Prozac helping mothers be better mothers or babies be better babies because the Prozac was in the mother's body during the time of pregnancy. We're fairly certain that the problem is that depression interferes with the development of babies uh, in an optimal way. And so if I understood correctly, and again, I might be imagining this, but I think that th this author essentially said we buried the study because we were afraid that all the mothers in the world who saw this, who were hoping that their babies would be superstars, would suddenly start taking fluoxetine, which is Prozac, to be able to have yeah. uh, these very healthy babies. And I think that's probably where you're headed with talking about 30 to 75% relapse. It can be very difficult to pull somebody back in from a manic episode. The consequences to the fetus in utero can escalate. The consequences with uh, postpartum instability uh, start to multiply. And now what you have is a baby that doesn't have the same um, interactional uh, kinds of necessary developmental activities uh, to, to grow and develop. And I think that's where that's headed. Did you read anything that would help me tie those thoughts I have together? Um, sort of the summary I came away with was a pregnant woman is already at an increased risk for destabilizing into a manic episode. And so if you, if you add stopping the medication that's stabilizing them to their already increased risk, then there's a high chance they're going to destabilize into mania, which will affect the fetus almost assuredly. I've had a, a, an attending who told me that uh, bipolar disorder, or I'm sorry, uh, postpartum depression, not the blues, and I think we've talked about that in a previous podcast, or at least postpartum psychosis, and I don't remember which he told me, is pathognomonic for bipolar disorder. And I thought that was very interesting. There's a great deal of data out there now about postpartum depression, or at least postpartum psychosis. There's at least data about that area of research relating to bipolar disorder. And it's interesting to me that 
mania, you're associating mania with the onset of pregnancy where we think about postpartum depression as the offset of pregnancy. Did they talk about any sort of hormonal switches or changes that might relate to that? They didn't. They didn't get into the details on that. It was just sort of, here's the numbers, here's the risk. And the point they were trying to make is this risk of Epstein anomaly is 2%. This risk of relapsing or destabilizing into a manic episode is huge. Yeah. So really, that was the point of the article. They didn't go much into the weeds on the kinds of things that yeah so so I guess the point of the podcast is these things that I'm speculating about uh, take it with a grain of salt if you see something you know think about it further it's an idea out there not not something that we've looked at as closely as the other kinds of items in the podcast yeah especially with pregnancy you could do an hour on just pregnancy and lithium and I didn't delve into all of the details and all of the weeds but there's a lot a lot there to be looked at I wouldn't be surprised if one of the reasons why our patients who become pregnant destabilize who are on lithium, why they could destabilize while taking their lithium. And I think, Devin, you talked about some of the challenges of lithium treatment during pregnancy. Do you want to go over those again for the second time in a second <laughs> podcast? Yeah. So you become pregnant. You know, pregnancy brings on a host of changes to the mother's body. And the GFR goes up when you're pregnant. And so women, even though there are going to, we can keep them on a stable dose, they're going to start excreting more lithium. So their levels can actually go down. If, and if we don't adjust their dosage, they're going to go down. So they could potentially still be on their lithium, but drop out of therapeutic range and then destabilize. So it is something that you're going to have to monitor as they begin their pregnancy. Do we need to make adjustments? And then again, at the end of the pregnancy, we have the volume contraction, everything starts going back to normal. We now don't want the lithium to go toxic because we've adjusted their dose up. So it's, as pregnancy makes, we have to double check everything and monitor everything because everything's changing. The first trimester seems to be the risk associated with mm -hmm. Epstein's anomaly. I think we should probably at least point that out, but there also seems to be some risks associated with lithium use, uh, perinatal risks. I think you talked about those yesterday yeah. when we tried this the first time. Yeah, so the article says, for the first trimester, it says limit dosage during the first trimester, yet keep it within therapeutic range. So they're kind of living in this fantasy world that we are as well. With, with the, very difficult to do, but that's the recommendation from the paper. In the peripartum um, timeline, you want to stop lithium before birth a few days before so that that lithium doesn't transfer to the fetus because they the fetus or the baby at this point can get all of those side effects and toxicities that Devin has mentioned earlier in the podcast and that'll present as a flop floppy baby syndrome is sort of how we learn it in medical school and they can get hypothyroidism and hyperparathyroidism and all of these things as well so we have to be very careful to stop that and then start it again if the mother decides she does not want to breastfeed. If she does want to breastfeed, 30 to 40% of the mother's plasma levels of lithium will transfer to the baby. And then you have to be really concerned about that baby because, you know, the mother is a lot bigger, so 30 to 40% in her is going to be a lot in this baby. And it can be very dangerous. So does the baby's blood level, the baby's blood level is 30 to 40% of the mother's blood level, or there is a huge transfer of lithium because of some sort of strange collection 
uh, in the breast milk. So yeah, the, so f- of the mother's plasma levels, thirty to forty percent will end up in the breast milk, oh. and then the baby will absorb some percentage of that, which the article didn't cover. Okay. But it did state that it's dangerous. And so full contraindication for breastfeeding on lithium. No. <laughs> <laughs> So this is this is Hold another. On, don't, don't tell me. Keep the lowest dose possible on <laughs> the baby. Uh, I'm not sure I can feel comfortable with that. Yeah. So it's funny. There are every source has a different recommendation. I saw in one absolute contraindication, and I can't remember which source said what now. But some did say absolute contraindications, whereas others said it's okay. Just keep a close eye on it. Monitor the lithium levels in the baby and the in parathyroidism the and mm-hmm. hyperparathyroid levels potentially or calcium ionized calcium levels stuff along mm-hmm. those lines so. which sounds rough for a baby if we're they don't have a lot in there already and if we're poking those poor heels and sucking blood yeah. up to monitor all this the, that the, might be a little hard on the baby and the parent it's yeah. a strong recommendation to to not breastfeed or to stop the lithium but not an absolute contraindication and again the challenge you have is then what molecule do you put in mom right and how does that end up being a factor as well and if you stop a molecule and start another one, you've now multiplied explo- exposures during developmental windows. And those may not be additive, they may be synergistic, right? In a right. bad way. Mm-hmm. At least I know that's the thinking uh, with that first trimester, right? If you have somebody that comes in and they're on lithium and they've already been on lithium a month and a half, I know with Depakote, the answer is you give folic acid and you put that, uh, the, the, I think the woman who is pregnant would go on the registry rather than the fetus would go mm. on the registry, right? And there's a registry tracking that, and I think that's through the FDA maybe. Yeah, we were really surprised that valproate wasn't on the absolute contraindication for pregnancy. Yeah, so yeah. it was listed as a D, and then you thought, I guess I always thought it was going to be an X, but it's also listed as D from the FDA. Yeah, it has the neural tube defects and a couple of other things, right? The craniofacial stuff. And I was surprised, too, because I, that was another one of those. Uh, that's uh, not what I understand. <laughs> Can you explain that one again? And then we went and we looked at the most recent uh, prescribing information, the PI4 valproic acid, and saw that it had been updated. So instead of stopping the medication, you would give the mother uh, high-dose uh, folic acid, continue the medication, Put them on the registry, right, so that they can track the absolute outcomes to the fetus. So, what have we not talked about? Mm, I think we've covered most everything we talked about yesterday. And more efficiently, I think we're three minutes uh, <laughs> under time for yesterday. Oh, awesome. awesome! Yeah, take homes. I will start uh, because I I think um, it it's always a treat to have a student point out what you don't know and uh, do it so tactfully. I appreciate that, Devin. Uh, And I have enjoyed the podcast, perhaps even more the second time than the first time. For some reason, I was very worried that this would seem a little bit uh, rote or or practiced and not as spontaneous. And yet somehow um, this was a different conversation than we had last time and equally as fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So my take home is don't stop learning and don't be shocked when your students tell you something that you don't know about. Just go, wait a minute, hold on. 
I don't know that. Let's back up. Where'd you read it? And let me read it too. Who's next? Um, I think my biggest takeaway is that lithium has a lot of uses outside of psychiatry that we could be looking into. And uh, as I joked before, I think we need to find a monitor for lithium that patients can <laughs> use because I think that would help us use it more broadly. So would you want uh, like a CNS monitor or would you like a peripheral monitor? So do you want something that's uh, intradural or not? I'd have to do more research on that. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. I, I'm always amazed at the repurposing of medications. I've been watching with some interest how the coronavirus has evolved and how we've looked at other medications for possible benefit and treatment. I think we've had a few that looked like they were promising initially and then didn't pan out. I'm not getting into the politics of that. Um, <laughs> and even some of the psych meds, uh, I think there have been a couple of case reports or maybe even some data about fluvoxamine, one of the SSRIs that doesn't get much street cred from the, from, uh, you know, the guys in the know, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, it seems to have some effect on cr the coronavirus. And I think when we consider the possible applications of all the molecules we're using and the repurposing of those, there's a lot of discussion out there about that. What doesn't seem to be there yet that I'm aware of is the funding to be able to push those through phase two yeah. and phase three trials that allow us to use those with a with an FDA approval. But I like your thinking, and maybe you'll be the person that figures out how to do that. Maybe I will. When you are, can you invite me to your Nobel Prize? <laughs> I will. Party? Yeah, okay. me too. Okay. Very, very cool. Kyle, you up next? Um, I guess my takeaway would be the history was really cool. I love that one. The story of the doctor buying a brick of lithium and cutting chops off. <laughs> Putting it in the capsules. <laughs> I, I was going to say you should do that for cold sores or yes, <laughs> just go, go buy yourself a, a block of lithium. I, I bet there's a way to get a compounding pharmacy to make topical lithium. Probably is. Yeah. So anyways, my takeaway is it's, it's, a, it's a cool history. I think people are scared of it. These side effects sound scary, but it's an extremely effective drug and we shouldn't be scared of it because we know what to do and what to look for when using it. And so my takeaway is this is a fantastic tool we have to help people who are really struggling and we shouldn't be scared to use it. Yeah, it's, I think regularly for me, it's the only medication that helps some of my patients. Yeah. And to not be able to use it, I think, is unhelpful to my patients. I like that take home. Devin? So this, I've really enjoyed all this research and learning. So I felt like I've spent the last three years getting a lot of mixed messages about lithium. And, that's, and I just had a lot of confusion coming in. So I've really enjoyed deep diving into this and getting information. And so my takeaway really from this has been to when I have these questions, these fears, these wonders, like dive in and find out yourself. Don't take anyone's word for it, whether that's a professor or an attending or, or, or the textbook. Like I feel comfortable with lithium now. I know where it's come from. I understand the risks that are associated with it, how to manage those risks and why there is trepidation around it, but how to avoid that. And so now going forward, I feel like, yeah, I can be a family physician doctor, I can use lithium and feel comfortable that I can treat a patient properly, use it efficaciously, and avoid the scary stuff with it and, and help someone. So that's, this has just been a good learning experience for me. So you're talking about something that's so fascinating to me. So first of all, 
as an attending, you kind of warmed my heart there, telling me that you liked this <laughs> assignment. I don't know why anybody would like an assignment, but <laughs> I like that. But the second part of that is if you think about prescribing any medication that you haven't watched somebody else prescribe, that's scary, right? So even the first time you prescribe something and like an intern, a medical intern is sitting over your shoulder and says, okay, here's the words you write. 200 milligrams B I D. No, th those are letters, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was so scary for me. And then the jump from um, prescribing things that I had only observed being prescribed to prescribing things that people hadn't prescribed in front of me. That's also another step. And I always feel like reading the data, reading the studies that, at least the studies that lead to the FDA approval, is a minimum for prescribing the medications. I didn't do that at first because you're trying to catch up, but every new medication that has come out in my field, I've made an effort to read those, those pivotal trials, I think is what they're commonly called, and I think it makes a huge difference. That you're thinking, hey, I can answer this question and any question because I know the process of digging in, that's, that is exactly one of the main goals that I have with this podcast is to have students be able to go, I can, I can figure out how to solve a medical problem. I don't have to give up. If I don't have an answer, I can't refer. I'm living in um, Battle Mountain, Nevada. <laughs> and I don't have a referral. My patient can't afford to go to Reno or Vegas. I'm it, or this patient gets no care, right? I, I think it's really, really amazing that you're able to do that. Now, I don't know that that happens as much anymore with uh, the communications technology we have, but to be able to pick things up and manage it as a co-manager, as a family practitioner, and being able to pick up the literature and read, I, th I think that's the greatest skill that any physician can have is to identify the problem, pick up the literature, synthesize it, read it, and make decisions. I agree. This has been a good game, a good learning experience. So unless anything, anybody has anything else, I think we can sign out. So team out. Team, team out. out.